and welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and I'm so excited that you're joining us today. We are going to have a fascinating conversation, as usual, as we learn from people all around the world at all ages and stages of life. Stay tuned as we shift our dementia care from crisis to comfort. Here we go. Don't you think about Well, hi, everyone. I'm Lori LeBay, and welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. Today, we are going to be talking with Pippa Kelly over in the UK, and uh, she is just an incredible journalist and podcaster, and you are going to absolutely love the show. But before I get into uh, introducing you to Pippa, I do want to just welcome our listeners back. And then also for those that are new, if you're wondering what we're about, Alzheimer's Speaks is about sound information, not just sound bites. We like to talk with real people living in the trenches um, that have real stories to tell. And that means people living with dementia. That means family members. That means researchers and medical professionals, all kinds of businesses, advocates. Um, We've had kids on Everyone is welcome, big and large organizations. The more information that we can get out to the public, the easier we're going to make life be because dementia is not an illness of one. I also want to point you to um, head over to alzheimerspeaks.com. There you will find a bunch of free resources. We have one category just uh, tagged education, uh, free educational resources, and you'll find all kinds of stuff there. I would also love for you to check out our book tab. I just launched a, a, a keynote of mine turned into a book called Betty the Bald Chicken Lessons in How to Care. It is a story, not dementia specific, but it talks about, you know, when you just don't fit in and what life is like and the choices that we make and the impact it has on others. And it has some questions in the back and we're just getting phenomenal reviews from a variety of um, different sectors. So please check out Betty the Bald Chicken. Now we're going to hear from the Adaptive Equipment and Caregiving Corner, and we will be right back. I love the footbar walker, and let me tell you why. It is the option for my toolbox that I've been waiting for. Let's be honest. There are some clients who, despite our best rehab efforts, just aren't able to return to performing a sit-to-stand transfer on their own. Now I can offer my caregivers an easier, safer option that doesn't involve hoisting their loved one up from a sitting position. I don't recommend this walker for all of my clients, but I do recommend this walker for those caregivers looking for an easier, safer option with transfers. I would also encourage other therapists to add this walker to their toolbox. It's kind of like having my own mobile parallel bars for the client to pull up on. Whether it's a family caregiver at home helping a loved one with Parkinson's or dementia, CNAs in a long-term care facility assisting their patients, or therapists adapting to client and caregiver-specific needs, we now have a very safe and effective option to offer in the Footbar Walker. Check this product out at thefootbarwalker.com. That's it for today from Adaptive Equipment and Caregiving Corner. Have a great day, and don't forget, if you can't do it, adapt it. Okay, it is time and we are back and I can't wait to have this conversation with 
Pippa Kelly. Uh, she is just renowned in the UK and really around the world. She has just a powerful, powerful message. Not only has she personally gone through the dementia journey, um, but she is an award-winning blogger, journalist, author, and podcast. And her podcast is entitled, Well, I Know Now, So Much More About Dementia. She is one of the top 10 influencers in dementia in the UK, and you will find out why during our conversation. Again, it's not going to be one you're going to want to miss at all. Like most of us, uh, she has been touched by dementia. Her late mother lived with dementia, uh, the vascular type, for 10 years. And again, I'm just so thrilled to have her on the show with us. Uh, she's been on my list for quite a while, and I'm just thrilled that we were able to connect because I know what you're going to hear here is going to be life-changing for you. Well, Pippa, I am so excited to have you on the show today. I have been a big fan of yours for ages, and this is kind of a dream come true because I, I just really do respect your work very, very much. Um, you've just done an excellent job in the in the arena of dementia. So thanks for taking the time to, to come on Alzheimer's Speaks. Not at all. I mean, that's very much reflected back at you, actually. Well, thank you. I always like to start, you know, with talking about have you personally been touched in your own family or circle of friends by dementia? And if you can kind of give us just a an overview of that, that would be great. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I have been. It was my mum who had dementia. And that's the reason why I became so involved in the dementia sector. It's the reason why I do everything. I do read dementia. Mm-hmm. Um, she died Oh, a long time ago now, my mum, she was a, a very sort of strong, forceful woman, even though she was almost entirely uneducated. And I think when her symptoms began, as with so often, um, we just thought it was mum getting more more eccentric, you know, as she grew older. we Because dementia is like that, it kind of creeps up on you, doesn't it? It's very incremental sometimes, not always, but I think often people say it's the same for them. And looking back, you think, well, Obviously, that wasn't right, but because it creeps up slowly, you you just put it down to the person's personality becoming more exaggerated. Um, for example, uh, she was generally a very sociable person indeed, and she loved entertaining family and friends, but then she started to not want to socialise. She started to just want to stay in and watch television, and she was limiting dad really and what he could do and I'm sorry to say that you know at the time we just kind of I think all of us just got a bit annoyed with mum really because she was the dominant one in the in the partnership between her and dad and we felt that she was having too big an influence and of course looking back you you just realize actually it was an illness it wasn't mum at all Um, so you feel very guilty something that I think goes hand in hand with anybody who's got a loved one with dementia, just guilt is hovering always around you, isn't it? Because it's that sort of a disease. So yeah, that was one of the first inklings, I suppose, was that she just became very much more antisocial. You know, my mom was like that exactly. I mean, she was like Miss Social Butterfly in charge of this club and this Mm. group and Mm. um, just always on the go. And all of a sudden she kind of became this wallflower. And she yeah. was talkative and, and, you know, I think our family went through the same thing of what's going on. And then you kind of think, well, you know, it's just, it's 
just changed and you don't realize it's a coping mechanism <laughs> that they're, you know, pulling back. I, anyways, it was for my mom. I think she didn't want to make mistakes. You know, she didn't want to misspeak. And um, so she just really kind of, kind of pulled back in, but Yes, interesting. I don't know whether mum was even sort of aware enough to try and think about pulling back or mm-hmm. whether she just, I know that, you know, she would, again, it's sort of looking back. I remember once um, I was going to be going to visit her because I live in London and I went to visit a friend. My daughter was then very young and the friend had moved out of London to Sussex, mm-hmm. which um people who don't know people in America or whatever it's only about an hour or so away from London but anyway I thought I'd go and visit mum sort of after we'd had um, a night and a day with the friend so I was sort of thinking that we'd arrive about half five six o'clock in the evening and then my mum was saying oh well I'll be going to bed mm-hmm. and it's like well mum hang on a minute you know we're coming and then again I thought because she I know it's terrible to say, but she could be quite forceful to the point of sometimes, I don't know, I don't really like saying it, but being a little bit selfish in her attitudes. And I, you know, and, that, and that's what I thought, you know, I said, look, mom, I can't get there any earlier. I'm visiting a friend. It would be rude to leave any earlier. And then it's going to take me an hour and a half to get to you. But actually, of course, I now know that, again, that's very classic, but I think she was beginning these whole sort of sundowning symptoms of wanting to go to bed really early and then that began to impact on dad's life too because mum would go to bed at six and poor old dad was left on his own you know I mean I think he spent hours and hours and evenings upon evenings on his own um but at the time (laughs) um the other thing I think is that perhaps and I think about this quite a lot now perhaps we didn't want to know perhaps we didn't want to think it might be dementia I'm going to be brutally honest I know certainly that we never mentioned the word dementia um and uh there was a really shocking um event that happened that led directly towards mum going into a nursing home and so it went from being eccentric wondering whether mum was okay slightly but sort of tiptoeing around what was going on and and then she tipped over a cliff I mean I can tell you about that because it was the most extraordinarily dramatic and painful event oh gosh yeah you know when you're talking about this I think one of the things people don't realize is is different is you know the the various dementias are, there's so much overlap, so much overlap. And when you were talking kind of about the denial, or maybe we just didn't want to know, you mm-hmm. know, our family, it, you know, it's been four, 40 years ago since my mom started having symptoms and she's been gone since 2014. Um, but she was the one mentioning Alzheimer's disease. Nobody even used that term. And it was like, wow, where, where's this coming from? We couldn't figure it out at all. And she would say, well, you know, grandma had Alzheimer's at the end, meaning her mom. By this time, you know, everything had kind of changed in the family and there weren't that many people around. And even my dad, you know, said, you know, grandma was on chemo and she was, you know, she had cancer at the end. She was on a lot of morphine. And so everyone just kind of brushed it off to that. And then, you know, we looked at, you know, what is this disease, but we, we didn't have any confirmation or anything. So I don't know if my 
grandma got diagnosed with that, which would really be amazing because that would have been like 60 years. Ago. Yeah, a really long time. Ago. Um, and so and, and she wasn't computer savvy or anything. So it was just kind of bizarre. And, and then her doctor kind of kept pushing it off, pushing it off and telling her it was menopause for like 10 years. So, I mean, it's tricky for families, but it's tricky for the medical professionals as well to figure all of this stuff out. If you don't mind sharing, you know, the story of, of what happened where you ended up having to have your mom move. Um, well, it's quite a long story. I'll try and condense it, but basically, um, we were sort of talking about it because my dad was also very ill. My mum was actually physically better than my dad. And my dad, my dad's whole family have a history of heart disease. And he, they lived in a, in a house. It was a really, really modest house. Um, but it was in a nice location. It, it's, um, it had very sloping gardens. It was built on a very, very steep slope down to a river. And it meant that, um, you know, everywhere they went was up or down a kind of one in three incline. And we grown up children, there are three of us, we began to realize that, you know, this was not good for dad. Mm -hmm. And then dad fell a few times. And then my parents had a really sympathetic GP and the GP had a word with us children and said, look, you, you, you know, your parents have to move. Mm -hmm. This was for the sake of dad, ironically, not mum. And mum just wouldn't move. This was another one of her sort of forceful traits. And she absolutely loved this house. Um, and she, it became this awful mantra, I'm not moving. She just said, I'm not moving. And she did always wear the trousers in the relationship. Um, anyway, because it got to this point, the doctor had a word with us. And luckily, very luckily, I had power of attorney. And dad got to the point where he had to be hospitalized for two weeks. And then at the age of 78, he had a well, it should have been a triple heart bypass, but it was considered too dangerous. So he had a double heart bypass at 78. Mm -hmm. And the doctor said, right, you know, your parents have to move. Mm -hmm. And he'd even written my mum a note and said, read this every night before you go to bed, Mrs. Kelly. And it said, I have to move for the sake of my husband's health. But she wouldn't. So we devised, we had a, the three siblings and my dad had this meeting and we devised a terrible sort of plan. And the plan was that I would sell using the power of attorney, I would sell this house, it was called Robin Wood, without my mum knowing, mm -hmm. without her consent and without her knowledge. So I was basically selling her home from under her. It was a terrible, terrible thing to do, but we had to do it for dad. Um, and that's often again, isn't it? When I talk to people, you've got two people in a marriage and you have to make these awful sort of decisions, you, you, these impossible decisions. Um, but we did it with the expert advice of the doctor and everything. So we'd made that decision and then it was very difficult to sell the house because we had to try and sort of sell it without her realizing it was up for sale which is very difficult finally we did that and then we had to try and get mum out of it and then this was a really heartbreaking thing we came up with another plan and this time it was that my my sister who lives in um in Somerset which is even further away it's about four and a half four hours from from London from where my parents lived um, which is outside London, um, she invited mum and dad to go stay with her and her family for the weekend, just for the weekend. Mm -hmm. Something that, you know, we knew mum would, would be happy with that. But then what we knew and mum didn't was that when my sister brought her back up, she wouldn't bring her back to the house. She'd bring her to this flat that using my power of attorney, I bought and it was a much more suitable flat for mum and dad, um, very close to their house. And so one 
uh, Thursday morning, many years ago now, I drove, I got, I got a call from my sister to say, okay, I've picked up mum and dad, the coast is clear and you can come down from London. So I drove down and I really, really remember this morning. It was dreadful. Um, it remains, I think, the most difficult day of my life. So I drove down and I'd moved into this house when I was 13 uh, with my parents. My siblings are much older than me, so they'd left home, but I was 13 and I had a really lovely teenage time in this house because I say it was gardens went down to the river um and I got to the house and uh I turned the key in the lock and because obviously mom and dad had left and when I walked in the house was all still warm and everything was all around because mom and dad thought they were well dad knew but mum thought she was coming back and I really remember because mum's coffee cup was still sort of sitting on the kitchen table and it was that that just about destroyed me because I realised it was that sort of, it was just so emblematic of the fact that she she thought she was coming back and it was this sense of betrayal. It was just this absolutely overwhelming sense of guilt and betrayal. And I really couldn't almost do what I had, you know, couldn't do it. I remember sort of standing on the threshold and thinking, I can't do this, but I had to do it. And so what I had to do, unbelievably, was pack up this house because uh, the next day the removal lorries were coming we had to get it all sort of done in this weekend while mum was away and so I just had to chuck away really the contents of this house the contents of cupboards and wardrobes and drawers and just throw them away into black bin bags it was terrible um and so looking back you know as one does constantly with dementia I realized that mum's dementia robbed me not just of my mum, but of my own chance to say goodbye to this childhood home. Um, I mean, at a profound level, actually, it, 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 I wasn't able to say goodbye to my own sort of childhood. And later that did come back to bite me because that's quite profound. Because often, I'm sure you have it in America, but often journalists or writers will write about in our national papers the terrible time when they have to move out of their parents' home. And I often think, well, that is terrible, but... <laughs> It was better than the alternative, which is what I had to do, which was to not, you know, to just bin everything because I had a little about five hours to do it. Anyway, my brother arrived over from Ireland where he lives a bit later that day. And so the two of us just, you know, sort of binned everything and packed the items that would go to the new flat, packed them up ready for the removal men. And the next morning the removal men came and took everything to the flat. Paul and I rushed around setting up this flat on a Saturday as best we could in the time available, making it sort of comforting for mum and dad to move into. And then on the Sunday, my parent, my sister brought my parents back up. And then as she approached this town where we live, she told dad and my sister told mum what we'd done. And I always think when I relate that story that, you know, it just sounds so terrible that it's no surprise that mum, she had a sort of breakdown when she heard what we'd done. She had a sort of psychological breakdown and she got very agitated and upset and she wouldn't get out of the car. And my poor sister had to call out paramedics. And that's when my mum's dementia just completely unleashed itself. And again, what is now so common, I know, is that her dementia had been staved off because dad had been covering it up big time. And also she'd been in these, they'd lived in Robinwood for 36 years. So she was in this very familiar house that she absolutely loved. And so 
she could cope. They had these mechanisms. And then this brutal, absolutely terrible shock just, you know, tipped her over the edge. And then um, she was, she had a geriatric consultant appointment later on that following week. And so on the Monday morning, I phoned up and explained to the consultant secretary what had happened with my mum over the weekend and how dreadful it was. And I said, can we bring this meeting forward? Because we're in an emergency crisis now, this family, because my mum had spent the Sunday night in this flat. She was heavily sedated by the paramedics. And I said, we need somebody to see her as a matter of urgency. So mum and I walked into the consultant's room. They said, yes, come, come up, bring her into hospital. We went into the consultant's rooms. And again, this is so common. I mean, she she knew, mum just knew that something was afoot. Mm-hmm. And she kind of clicked back into the old mum and she seemed perfectly reasonable. And I was thinking, oh, God, because she does need help. I mean, I, you know, she's definitely ill. Um, but she doesn't show it at the moment. And then the consultant began to talk to her and say, Mrs. Kelly, your family are only doing what's absolutely best for you. You do need to, to move out of this house for your for your husband's sake. And then once again, she started off with her mantra and just, I'm not moving. I'm not moving. And she got all sort of upset and agitated. And, and uh, the consultant who'd already warned me about this said, well, um, I'm going to step out of the room then. And that was his signal to me that he was going to go and fetch a colleague and my mum was going to be sectioned so that she'd have to go into hospital under the Mental Health Act. And then I was, of course, just, I was exhausted <laughs> physically, emotionally, mentally, psychologically after this terrible sort of 72 hours we'd had. And when I you know, thought my mum's about to be sectioned and I was very, very close to my mum. I burst into tears in the doctor, you know, in the consultant's room. And then the extraordinary thing happened because the mum, she clipped back into the old mum and she looked me straight in the eyes and she said, well, I'll go into hospital then because I can't upset my baby. Because she always called me her baby because I was the youngest of her three children. And she did. She did. She went into hospital for six weeks and then she was discharged from hospital straight into the first of two nursing homes, care facilities, you call them in America. And and she lived out 10 years, well, about nine years in these two nursing homes. And she never really, she got a bit better in the first few months in her first nursing home. In some ways, she looked better in herself, but you know, she was never, ever the same. Uh, and I think really, however the move had occurred from this house that she lived in for 36 years, it would always have been the most terrible wrench mm-hmm. because of the way it had to be done with this terrible sort of underhand way. It was such a terrible thing to do. And I still, every time I sort of relate that story, I have to remind myself, that we had no alternative because it sounds so horrendous and well it sounds cruel obviously but you know dad was also very ill and you know we had to do what we had to do yeah it's that big picture the other thing I think people don't realize is you can get the person to agree with you and then at the last minute they'll go no I'm not moving and exactly and and so you know it's it's really just a tough 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 decision but 
Oh my gosh, what a roller coaster of emotions. And when you said exhausted, I was I was exhausted for you just listening to it thinking it was terrible. I mean, and oh. again, how weird are humans? Because I do remember thinking, because I've been doing Pilates, you know, mm-hmm. Pilates, like yoga Pilates for well, since my daughter was about six months old, because I had a bad back and things, and I started then, and my daughter's now 24. Um, and it's on a Monday night. And even after, so that whole weekend started on the Thursday morning when I got the call from my sister to say, come down, you can start, you know, clearing out this house. Until the Monday, I, I still thought I'd be going to Pilates on the Monday. I remember thinking, oh, good, that'll be nice. You know, I'll be able to do Pilates. And of course, by Monday evening, I was an absolute wreck. I mean, I couldn't have moved anywhere. I was just basically... I remember walking in the door on the Monday because we were a long time in the hospital then, of course, because she was admitted. And uh, I walked back into my house on the Monday evening at about half past eight in the evening. And I just said to my husband, I need a whiskey mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, now. And I just remember sitting for hours and and um, and actually smoking. I mean, I just said I didn't really smoke very much, but I said, God, I just need a whiskey and I need some cigarettes and I just need to sit here and I need to be I didn't know what I needed, really. I was in a sort of state of, well, I have had to have counselling about it since, and as I say, because I didn't really say goodbye to my childhood or my mum or anything. It was just so awful. Um, one of A very good um, psychotherapist I saw said, actually, you have a sort of PTSD about it. That's what I was going to say. You've got post-traumatic stress. Mm-hmm. You know, and that stuff never really, I mean, you can get therapy, but it never really goes away. It doesn't. You know what? Because I've told that story many times, and um, although I haven't for a while. And uh, it was the first piece I ever wrote because I was a freelance journalist then. And so a year later, I couldn't, I didn't, couldn't mm-hmm. do it then, but a year later when mum was settled into her nursing home and emotions were, were far less raw, I wrote it about it in what we call a long read, you know, a long piece for the Sunday Express over here. And uh, that was the first piece, really, that I wrote about my mum's dementia. And uh, I wrote it under a pseudonym. It's the only time I've ever written under a pseudonym, but it was just still very raw. And also, you know, my mum wasn't able to give her consent. And my dad by then was now also very ill. He Physically, he had a series of strokes. Um, and I just felt it was not right. But I knew I wanted to try and help other people because it was just such an awful thing to go through. And as I talked to friends and other people, I realised that a lot of people my age were going through it, perhaps not in quite such a dramatic way, but, you know, they were. And so my message in that very first piece actually was, I'm writing this to, sh- to show other people that they're not alone. And, um, and also that to just try and sort of share some of the mistakes if, or, you know, share share this terrible experience really well how brave of you you know to do that to get the conversation going you know there's so many people that i don't care if it's a support group or an article or a video where they just feel this relief of oh my gosh i I didn't think there was a person on this planet that understood what i was through and that is such a gift to people yeah i had no idea about that laurie that first piece, even though it was a pseudonym, I mean, I, I still know she's very, become a very good friend. I'm meeting her for lunch tomorrow. The editor of, she, she's moved on now several times, but the editor of the Sunday Express magazine, um, she forwarded me all the letters and everything that came to this pseudonym. Uh, and we were both pretty amazed. 
It had yeah. an astonishing response. And that's why I realized, as you say, I thought, wow, the power of sharing, of realizing. And also, like you say, I never saw it like being brave and I never saw it like people would thank me. But when I give speeches or something and I did make the decision then, which is partly why I did it as a pseudonym, I thought if I write about this, it's going to be difficult because it does sound awful. And I've got to be truthful. I've got to be honest. Otherwise, there's absolutely no point. And that it make it worse for people because if I kind of pretend it was all hunky-dory or something, I mean, that's or even if I kind of round off the edges a bit, I thought it's got to be very truthful and honest. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, the, the the overwhelming response of people, which took me a while to sort of get my head around, was, was thank you, like you just said, mm. thank you. And I said, well, I do understand now. They're basically mm. saying thank you for letting me know that I'm not the only one who feels this terrific guilt. It's not, I'm not being a monster when I have to make these impossible decisions or, you know, and I've also spoken about you know, other emotions that are involved when you go through something like that. And it was years and years of my life. Um, I say caring for my parents, but I'm always at great pains to say I didn't care for them like some people I know do, like 24-7 and, you know, really rolling up the shirt sleeves. But I was their sort of champion, their advocate, both of them, my mum and my dad, and I would you know, go to the hospital meetings, you know, deal with the solicitors, deal with the doctors, deal with whoever it might be, the bank, you know, every, all these things that suddenly you become, you have to sort of live their lives vicariously. Yeah. And in my case, in stereo, because it was mum and dad. And after several years of doing this, my daughter was very young, uh, you know, at primary school, at sort of, she was of eight when it all kicked off um or younger and um I began to feel I didn't even acknowledge it as such but again with you know I, I, I began to feel resentful that um my own life and my freelance writing and my family you know my husband ha has his own company and uh sort of needed me and my daughter needed me and my mum needed me and my dad needed me and I was, but there was no time left for me. Oh, I, I totally, totally get that. And I, I remember when my, my dad had brain cancer, my mom had dementia. When my dad died, um, it, it freed up some of my time. And by then mom had moved into the nursing home to be with him. And I didn't know what to do with myself. You know, people are like, well, what do you like to do? I don't know. I haven't thought about that in years, you, you know, and it was, it was such a foreign thing. And I had to kind of explore and experience and go, what do I like? The world has really changed a lot during this, this, you know, time period and stuff. Um, so it's, uh, you know, it's just bizarre. And we know we can only make the best decisions with the knowledge we have at the, you know, at that time. And it's really easy to go back and, and beat ourselves up and go, there's got to be another way, but you would have found it if it was there. Um, the other thing I want to say about your story that to me it really just um, shows really clearly, and, and I've said this for years, you know, dementia isn't a disease of one. Your mom didn't just have it. It affected your whole family. Yeah. You know, your, your whole family, you know, was trying to support the situation with your mom, with your dad. And, and I think sometimes we forget that, that, 
you know, it, it creeps into our brains and our hearts and, you know, it can affect us physically, emotionally, all of those different things. And our lives really change significantly. Yeah, they, they absolutely do. And you asked me um, sort of some of the things that I I wanted to talk about. And uh, I've noted down, I think that, that one of them is that just that, you know, this massive impact that dementia has really on everybody sort of around the individual who is diagnosed. That's not to take away from, you know, the individual who who actually, you know, poor thing is is given the diagnosis personally, but it does have this enormous impact. And very early on when I started to sort of write more and more about dementia and talk to people who are far more knowledgeable on the subject than I was, I did realise that. And I often used to say, um, I remember at the beginning, because it was a bit of a sort of eye-opener to me, and I used to say, yes, I think there tends to be like a main carer, whether that be the spouse or one of the grown-up children or, you know, whoever it is. Um, and And they're like almost like two sides of the same coin because they kind of have to go along together. And whatever is happening sort of happens to both of them not in the same ways obviously because one of them is experiencing the illness and the other is caring for the person experiencing the illness but you can't really separate the two no um so that's something I did uh not realize at the time uh because at the time you're just so busy going through it you are just trying to deal with the situation hour by hour day by day um And I just have so much respect and time for anybody who is caring 24-7. It would be totally beyond me, I think. I I really don't think I could do it. Um, Because all I know is that even though I wasn't doing it 24-7, I was doing it more by being my parents' champion, their sort of advocate and um, eyes and ears and voice, if you like. Uh, It was all-consuming. For me, it was all consuming. And even when I remember once as well, because you never get away from it. I remember once when I was right in the thick of it with both parents. And because it was getting very difficult, we, my, I think my husband, I don't know who, but anyway, we went up to see some friends in, in, in Derbyshire. And by this time, and that's quite a long way from London up in the north, further north. And uh, this time I've managed to get this um, for my father, who was, in this apartment that we bought and he loved it there and it's fine but he had this series of strokes so he'd come in bedridden and everything and I got a sort of unofficial care and it was wonderful because it was a young Polish man mm-hmm. and my and uh my dad was in the second world war and he loved the Poles anyway and the two of them would communicate by speaking French because my dad always used to like try to speak French he was a great Frankfurt and so my dad loved Marius and they would chat away. And as dad grew more and more sort of infirm and everything, Marius was great because also he was a man and there was something rather nice about that. And he would shave my dad. And um, so I left dad in the capable hands of Marius and went away for this weekend with my husband and without our very young daughter, you know, so it was like, oh, yeah, some me time. And we'd only arrived in Derbyshire about an hour or two and the men had gone off to watch rugby or football or something. And the girls had gone off to the local town and we were having a glass of champagne and we were going to do some shopping. You know, it's like, okay, this is going to be like amazing and so nice. And then my mobile phone went off. And it was Marius. And all I had to see was Marius' name come up. 
And I was back with my dad thinking, oh, my God, what's happened to dad? And actually, it was Marius suggesting that he take my dad to the Remembrance Day parade or something, because my dad used to like going to that. But it was enough because I couldn't get myself back out of that headset. And all afternoon, I felt very, very anxious and not at all right. And by the evening, our friends had arranged a nice big sort of dinner party and invited some of their local friends. And I just couldn't deal with it. I was talking to somebody and they asked, I can't remember what question they asked, but anyway, and I remember just feeling I'm going to burst into tears. I mean, it was nothing to do with them. It was because my head was in this other space. And then I just had to take myself off to bed because I thought I'm going to ruin this dinner party. So without telling anybody, I just sort of left the table, went to bed and just so it was just I couldn't get away from it. You know, you can physically remove yourself, but I still couldn't get away from it. Well, and I think you're so emotionally exhausted and physically exhausted. It doesn't take much to tip you. Anyways, I found that for myself. And, um, you know, when you're talking about there, there's caring, but then you're in this protection mode too. Yes. Uh, of, are they safe? And, and that's just like high alert all the yes, time. Yes, you're right. Yeah. And, and that, you know, being on high alert with anything is hiring, the, isn't it? Yeah, it, it really, it really is. Now, are there some, a couple of life lessons that you've learned through this process you know, through this journey with your mom? Yes. And um, my journey with my mom and then also sort of subsequently, because I've spoken to some incredible people um, through what I've gone on to do in in the dementia sector over here. And I think, um, well, one is so obvious in a way, and it is just uh, carpe diem, you know, just seize the day because everything is so valuable. And, um, and this, you know, it's like the title of my podcast is taken from that Sylvia Plath quote, because you come to know what a simple thing like a snowfall can mean. You come mm-hmm. to know what a simple thing like seeing at the moment, you know, actually we're having a terrible day here at the moment. Now the weather's awful, but we are getting the first glimmers of spring and, you know, the blossom on the trees. And I just, it's changed me. And we've been a bit, we've been a bit sort of intense and, um, I have actually with my that always gets me that whole story it's terrible but you know on the other hand there are some little tiny sort of glimmers of of light in the whole dementia sort of experience and and one is because a lot of people that I know with dementia say say this as well that it does because it makes you stop mm-hmm. slow down and often the people with dementia will say that uh Wendy Mitchell says that um who has dementia, but is also a best-selling author. And she said, you know, she had a very busy life and now she is a fantastic photographer because she was saying, well, it's partly because my brain slowed down and I see these things. I see the caterpillar on the leaf or, uh, you know, so this sort of sitting, being in the moment, there's something amazing about that. The one never really appreciates, you know, we're always rushing for, or you, Laurie, I mean, one of your, you talk about, you know, the, what is it, the tears, the fears and the joy. So you know, the tears for the grief for what's gone, the fears for what might happen, but the joy can be had in the moment. And I think, you know, we, we just kind of forget that. So that's probably a, the most profound lesson that I've learned. The other lesson for myself is I think I'm a kinder person. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I think I was, and I don't think I was alone in this. I'm not going to beat myself up too much, but I didn't really want to know about dementia. It didn't affect me as far as I knew and or anybody I knew. And so I probably did see people who were living with dementia, but I probably just did that thing of, oh, that person's being a bit embarrassing. I'll look the other way or I'll walk a bit faster or I won't. Uh, as soon as as soon as my mum got dementia and it was diagnosed and we all knew what we were dealing with, we would try and make the best of it. And there was a very nice little local restaurant the mum and dad absolutely loved going out to. And even when my mum's dementia was quite advanced, we would take her for days out from the nursing home and go to this restaurant. And they all knew her and the staff were amazing. You know, she would go. And my mum was always a little bit eccentric and pretty outrageous. And obviously that came off. So it was quite funny really because whatever the weather and really whatever, I think a lot of people who mentioned develop a sweet tooth and she just sort of arrived and said, well, I want the Knickerbocker glory. You know, it's like, hey, right, what now? You know, you don't want any meat. Or, I want the Knickerbocker glory. And they just said, no, that's absolutely fine. We'll bring you the Knickerbocker glory then, Mrs. Kelly. And, you know, um, I, and I would, and then if anybody in the restaurant was sort of looking a bit askance at my mom who might be getting, I would, be like that tigress you know I'd be like roaring up on my hind legs thinking you give my mum any funny looks and you know I'm gonna come and sort you out I was such a changed person in that sense as well and I think now I'm much more aware that you know there are reasons why people might be acting differently from you know you and me or whatever and there's probably a good reason and who am I to start judging I think it makes you less judgmental which is really good um yeah. You know, you, you talked about the restaurant. My, my mom and dad had a, a favorite little uh, pub that they would go to. And, you know, after dad passed, they would still bring mom there. And the staff, like you said, they just know her. And it sounds like our, you know, our, our moms were very social and just, you know, everybody knew who they were kind of type thing. And so I, I was shocked too at the compassion they knew they knew she had changed and stuff. And my mom had this thing for popovers. <laughs> and so as we're leaving, the woman goes, you know, my mom said something about popovers. And the waitress says, Oh, Dorothy, let me let me go get you some popovers. Well, she comes out with like six bags of popovers. And my mom just lights up like a two-year-old in a candy store. She's just yeah. so excited. And we go to leave and she's carrying these bags. And for whatever reason, she loses grip and there's popovers everywhere. (laughs) And I, and I'm thinking, you know, and at that time I wasn't as gracious and I I was embarrassed. I was just like, Oh my gosh. Um, And I'm thinking, why did she give her that many popovers? They're not even good warmed up, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But but again, it was that compassion of, of caring, caring for, uh, you know, a client, um, and, and it was just so sweet, you know, that, that she did that. And, and I appreciated that on that whole level of just the kindness. She didn't treat her really any different. She just wanted my mom to have yeah. an experience. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Some people are innately like that. I think, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I've met and then other people aren't. And I would put myself in that second category up to a certain point before. And now I hope that I've kind of gone over to the other the, you know I hope I have <laughs> gone over to the good side from the dark side um the other big learning for me actually and you've touched on it um yourself is um this power of, of storytelling this power of telling your own story um and 
I suppose I did know that as a journalist, but I was used to telling other people's stories. But it's funny for me how other people have sort of uh, flagged that up to me, how they've said um, from very early doors on my sort of blog and that and the way I went about it, people will say to me, but you're a storyteller. Mm-hmm. And I would think, well, I'm a journalist and I'm, you know, I've written a novel and things. So, but, you know, as in kind of spin story, storyteller. And, but uh, yeah, they are such a powerful means to convey. And as a journalist, you do know that. I mean, you will always go to the individual, you know, no matter what the sort of situation is, the editor will really want you to go and find an individual so that you get the human story mm-hmm. of whatever the event is. But at this level, when you're talking about campaigning, that's really what you and I are in a way, um, this campaigning zeal and the way you use the stories, whether they be you know, your story, Laurie, my story, Pippa Kelly and my family and my mum's dementia, or whether they're us, you talking to me and me talking to other people in my podcast or me writing about other people for articles and blogs, you know, it's just always the power of these people's stories to connect with other people and in that sense you know another of my great learnings is that it is all about connections we are all about connections I think as humans on this earth we're all about human connection and that's what stories do really they connect us because back again to people saying thank you for saying that is because they think wow I connect with you you connect with me we share this we share the guilt we share the resentment, we share the exhaustion and, you know, and there's that connection being made through stories. It's just, yeah. I hadn't realised the power of that, which is yeah. silly when I was a journalist. It was silly, really. But but, um, but I think you understood it on a different level. A different and level. Then, and, yeah. then when it, and then when it hits you personally. Yeah, exactly. It was professional level. Yeah. Yeah. You, you realise, you realise what hearing other people's stories have done for you. Yeah. And, and I know for me, I kind of accidentally, you know, started by uh, a blog, you know, cause I was encouraged by other people to share my story. And I'm like, what do I know? I'm just a daughter going through this thing. Exactly. Yeah. And then I, I realized other people resonated with that. It's like this in the trenches storytelling, you know, it's raw, it's real, it's the good, the bad and the ugly. And, and I think these stories are all about as devastating as they can be they're all about giving hope that you're not alone. And, yeah. and, and that, that in and of itself is so huge, so huge. And it gives people the opportunity to, to look at somebody's story and go, maybe I could try that. Or I don't think that would quite work, but I can twist it and let me try it this way. You know, and when, when we can set up an atmosphere and platforms that allow people to feel comfortable to share stories, I think we can really push um, the arena of dementia forward at a much, much faster pace. When you have people in because they feel cared for, they feel heard, they feel understood, um, they feel accepted versus, you know, fear. We want, you know, we're going to, we're going to scare you to death and hope you give us money type thing. That's a real different leverage. And I think the public feels that really strongly. They see the difference in that and they want to be heard. And, you know, as we've talked offline is 
we can't provide resources, products, and tools for people if we don't know their stories, if we don't know what's, what are the real needs. Mm-hmm. And, and it's wow, just that's so, that's so well put, Laurie. Uh, that's so well put. It's just such an interesting process. I wanted to ask one thing, pull you back, because I'm really curious on this. My mom was in the nursing home for 14 years. Mm-hmm. You said yours was in for 10. And people go, well, that's unheard of. You yeah, know? It is a long time. Mm. And, and it is. But my mom also lived 30 years with the disease. Well, that's, a, but that's the longest I've ever heard. Mm-hmm. Yep. So over there, was it, is it common for people to live that long in a nursing home? No, not at all. I can't remember off the top of my head what the average sort of um, span of somebody to live in a nursing home is. But I think, and I'm going to get it wrong, I'm sure, it's very short. You know, mm-hmm. it's really short. Um, and I think it might be becoming shorter for some reason now. Um, but it's uh, plucking a figure from air when I'm very dubious about this. But I think it might be, you know, two years. Mm-hmm. It's very short periods. Um, uh, partly because we did have a policy for a while of it here. I think we've still got it really to try and keep people within their own home for as long as we can, you know, mm-hmm. um, which I can see exactly why that would be considered to be good. Um, as yeah. in mum's case, you know, the familiar, particularly with people with dementia, of course, is, is very helpful. Um, but then if you get a very good nursing home, a friend of mine's mother had dementia. She sadly, she passed away about a month ago now. But um, she'd gone very, very much downhill. And my friend thought, you know, it might be nearing the end. And then, in fact, she did go to a nursing home. It was an extremely good nursing home. And I remember speaking to my friend shortly after her mum went to the nursing home. And she said, oh, my goodness, I can't believe the change in mum. And she had really, really significantly improved always around her because of the stimulation she was getting and because the people that were caring for her were properly dementia trained and everything. And so, you know, it can be either way. But no. It's, it's a, no, you're, it's the same here. I mean, it's normally a much, much shorter period that one one would live in a nursing home or a care. We have nursing homes and care homes, and they're slightly different. Mm-hmm. Care home is more sort of general, and nursing home is when you tend to have greater needs and you need yep. the nursing. Yeah, so, same, same same here. Same. Yeah. The other thing while we are talking, because you were talking about the way that we can't know unless through people's stories we hear their experience and you think, oh, that's a way to do it or that helps. And I've had a lot of that myself, you know, when I talk to my interviewees or whoever and they say things. And one of the enormous, enormous things, which actually did happen to me, but I was completely by chance it happened to me. And it does make a rather lovely story, this one actually. So it's quite nice compared to the other rather dark story. Um, is the tremendous power of music. Uh, for people with dementia, even in the very most advanced stages of dementia. And um, so my mum died on on Christmas Day several years ago. And on the Christmas Eve, the day before she died, I got the call from the nursing home to say my mum was ill. And I must admit, I don't know if you did, Laurie, but I, I got that call so many times in the last sort of three years that I was slightly tempted not to go because I thought, oh, here we go again, you know, and mm-hmm. then mum would rally and it wouldn't be it. And it was... Christmas Eve you know and I was really busy and I think when I got the call I was you know shopping for and uh but anyway my husband who's kind of uh annoyingly right so, okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and on this he would always say to me and it was really good advice he would always say look you know, go down or do that or whatever it was because you know the thing is if this is going to be the time or if this is going to be the last time you get to I don't know take your mum out 
for a meal, say in the years preceding that, if you're thinking of a, he'd say, do it because then when, when the inevitable does happen, you, you will feel so much better. It was such good advice that you try everything you can, you go the extra mile because then when, what will happen does happen because it will happen. Like when she dies, when she dies, it will help you. It'll be of comfort to you. And he was so right on that. Anyway, he said, you know, no, you must go down and whatever. And I'll whatever it was with Emily, our daughter, I'll sort of do it. So I drove down and it was about two o'clock as I set off. And the other thing about, of course, people in the advanced stages of dementia, of course, again, I know so much more now, but then I was always sort of thinking, well, what am I going to do with mum? Because by this day, she was lying asleep, really, all the time. Mm. So you rush down there and then you sort of sit there, um, not knowing quite what to do anyway. Um, but I thought, oh, it's Christmas Eve. And my mum's favourite thing was this service of nine lessons and carols, which we have every Christmas Eve from King's College, Cambridge. And my mum absolutely loved it. She loved Christmas. Her own childhood was very sort of insecure and difficult. And so for us, I think she... She just loved to make Christmas very comforting. And so I thought, oh, great, Mum and I can listen to this. It's one thing we really can do. And I arrived in time, three o'clock, put it on. Um, and the first um, carol is always Once in Royal David City. Um, always. It's always what this service starts with. And it's a lone chorister's voice. And it started up on this little radio that Mum had beside her bed. And uh, she would just be lying there with her eyes closed, sort of curled up fetal position really and then she just opened her eyes and uh she was sort of like that and, and she just sort of looked up at the ceiling and that's all she did but it was a definite connection because she opened her eyes and there was this moment and I remember feeling quite choked because it sounds silly because all she'd done was open her eyes but it was just that I thought you're hearing that mum you're definitely hearing that and that's so wonderful that you're hearing that uh, so we listened to the service and then I drove back up to London and then she died the following day and uh, I got the phone call. I went down, but I arrived just a few minutes too late. So I was not there when my mum died. But it was, as my husband had said, you know, do it because it was a huge source of comfort to me to know that I'd been with her the day before. And we listened to the Nine Lessons and Carols, which was possibly her most favourite thing to do. So that was lovely. And now that I'm so sort of much more immersed in the dementia sector, I know much more the ins and outs of why of why this service of nine lessons and carols that my mum listened to every Christmas Eve, probably for oh, 50 years, if not more, you know, it was like ingrained. It was in her DNA. And um, that's why it connected because, and also, you know, neurologically it, fires off the different bits of the brain and uh and they're the last bits to go um and so you know I did the best thing I could have done but completely by accident yeah we've got a couple of videos of my mom with a musician where they were going to record her for an hour she only lasted a half an hour and I have probably I don't know eight little snippets on my YouTube channel where she just comes alive and then she'll go to sleep you know and then she kind of comes alive again yeah but on my worst day, I can go watch one of those and it makes my day better, you know? Yeah. And so it even, you know, just witnessing that, I think part of like the dementia journey for me anyways, it made me look for different things. It's those smaller things that just kind of melt your heart that make the difference. It's it's not the, the big, huge things. And so, 
how lucky to have captured that moment and have that memory of something that was so special. Yeah, uh, unbelievable, really, because it was just such a fluke or, you know, I mean, I, it was, I was so lucky. So yeah. Lucky. yeah. In, in, um, you know, you talked about getting that, those calls. I remember getting one. My mom was having um, severe tremors and that was not something that she had. And they were really almost like seizures of her whole body. And they said, you better come in and, you know, we need to update the paperwork. And so I was like, okay, she's, and at that time she had been in there like 10 years and they said, you know, we should probably redo, you know, the do not resuscitate and just let's yes. do all that. Yes. So I'm, I'm sitting on my mom's bed. She's in her kind of Jerry wheelchair sleeping and the nurse and I are going through all this paperwork and we've had all the conversations about do not resuscitate. And I knew exactly what she wanted, but you second guess yourself. And, and I was just really struggling. I filled out the paperwork. The nurse left the room. I, I'm going to get choked up saying this. And this is a long time ago. And mm-hmm. I said, Mom, just give me a sign. This yeah. is still what you want. Yeah. And my mom, out of a dead sleep, <laughs> turns to me and goes, yep. And then, she, <laughs> and then she goes right back, right back to sleep. But it was like, it's amazing those moments that happen. Yeah you know, where they, they just pull it together because they know you need that. And it was, um, again, it just amazed me at the connections that we have and the depth um, that are there. And it, it's just, uh, the disease has just taught me so much about human relationship and, yes. you know, and the levels of unconditional love. And I, I am so, I can't believe this hour has blown by. I could talk with you all day long. You know, um, you, you, <laughs> yeah, there's a lot in common, isn't there? There really is, you know, from our, from our moms, from, you know, both of us, you know, working and, and just philosophies of life and things like that. But I, I do want to wrap up and I hope people have picked up that, yeah, this, this journey can be tumultuous and it can be exhausting but, oh, my gosh, some of the lessons learned and the joyful yeah. moments you yeah. will never, ever forget. And they're hard to yeah. compare to other things. Anyways, for me, yeah, you know, and and we can create more of those joyful moments through sharing stories and, yeah. you know, what we're doing and what works and what doesn't work. So, you know, I just really urge people to to share their stories and. And with that, I, I want to kind of wrap up with um, with you telling people about your podcast and, and your writings. How do they find how do they find more of Pippa? Oh, yes. Well, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Um, so the podcast is called Well, I Know Now, which is from an American poet, uh, Sylvia Plath. You can listen to it on any podcast platform. I have got my blog, but I must admit, I nowadays concentrate really on my podcasts but the blogs are sometimes quite nice because they have longer sort of show notes that go along with the podcast if you want to dive a bit deeper or um, you you know the links are all there they're also in the show notes of the podcast Um, and some you know you can scroll back through the blogs when I was doing far more of them there are some amazing stories of the incredible incredible people who really um, very overused word, but true in this instance. Really, really, I, they really humbled me what some people are actually doing in the dementia sector, whether they be uh, musicians or actors or, you know, whoever they are, doctors or, or 
or specialist nurses. I mean, incredible, incredible things are going on in dementia. You know, as you say, Laurie, we just don't know about. Mm-hmm. Um, so my blog is uh, just pippakelly.co.uk and I'm on Twitter as my main social media platform I do do Facebook but far far less and I just don't find there enough hours in the day to do all the social media platforms I tend to be more of a presence on Twitter and I know Twitter comes in for a lot of you know stick at the particularly at the moment but um for the dementia community it's 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 been a tremendous thing uh the way that people can come together you know and signpost resources and articles and blogs and podcasts and it's a very benevolent space I think for people in the dementia sector on the whole. <laughs> Wonderful and your uh, Twitter handle I think is Pip on the Commons? Yes yeah, sorry I should have said that because it's quite different because I think the Twitter handle Pippa, Pippa Kelly had they'd all gone and we live between the Commons here in London so Pip on the Commons. Okay great. And, <laughs> it's and- a bit strange yeah. <laughs> In wrapping up, I just, again, I can't thank you enough for for spending time with us today. This was just an extraordinary episode. Uh, The stories, the the heartfelt emotion of your journey is just incredible. And I I know you are helping so many people all around the world, you know, by sharing your story and lifting other people's voices. And and, um, it's just phenomenal what you're doing. So again, thank you for for being so, so honest and authentic um, in your storytelling today. Really, really appreciate it. I, I almost feel like we're kindred spirits, you know. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, think, I, think, I think we are. There's so much in common. Yeah. 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 Well, and, thank you, Laurie. You do, you do, you know, incredible stuff. You really do yourself. So it's <laughs> this kind of mutual appreciation <laughs> Well, thank you. I do want to say to our audience that I have a favor to ask. I, I, I want you to like, click and share this, this episode, not because I want the likes, clicks and shares for Alzheimer's Speaks. It's never been about that for me. And hopefully you know that by now, but to, to raise Pippa's voice, to, to share her story, I, what she shared with us today is going to help so many. And, you know, you have a lot of people in your circle that are probably dealing with dementia that you don't even know are dealing with dementia. And we have to, we have to raise these stories up. We have to make them comfortable and normal for people to reach out. You know, there's still so much fear, you know, wrapped in this disease. And, and we can all do a better job if we decide to be givers of hope. It's going to take you a few seconds. Just click, click, click. That's all it takes. You don't even have to write a comment. Just push it out there. See what happens. And, and you know, become become part of the the cure the social cure you know we don't have we don't have that magic pill yet and i don't know if we will in my lifetime but we do have social care that we can control and that we can push forward and um, I, I think that is an amazing way to help those diagnosed and their families that care for them so thank you everyone for listening today again pippa thank you so much for your time really appreciate it So in wrapping up, everyone, again, I hope you enjoyed the show. Um, I would really encourage you to also go to alzheimerspeaks.com. There we have one whole uh, page that is dedicated to a bunch of free resources that you can tap into. And believe me, there's a lot more resources than you know. 
that are out there and those hosts, you know, what we have available, but they'll also connect you to Dementia Map, which is our global resource directory that we encourage anyone in this arena to go ahead and list their resources. We'll go ahead and, of course, vet people, um, but we've got 150 categories that you can check. There's a calendar of events. There are, there's a glossary of terms because you don't know what you don't know. And there's some wonderful, wonderful articles. And then also check out our new children's book, Betty the Bald Chicken, Lessons in How to Care. Um, We are just getting phenomenal reviews on that. Uh, You can go to our book tab on Alzheimer's Speaks to learn more. Thanks, everybody. Have a blessed week. Bye-bye. Hi, everyone. This is Meredith from the Senior Fitness with Meredith podcast, where I discuss all things for seniors. From fitness, your health and wellness journeys, how to be all over strong and beyond. I also have my mini podcast called Motivation with Meredith. It's a great, quick, motivational pick-me-up for your days. Join me. Listen now. Search for Senior Fitness with Meredith on your favorite podcast platform.